0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Trinity, and just welcoming everyone today in reminding everybody that this is our pre-Valentine's week, Sunday, so that's just a free public service announcement (laughs) for any of you husbands who, when I said that, were panicking a little bit because you don't have a card or a plan, so you're welcome. Um, And it's always a good Sunday when there's a banjo. I love how um, at Trinity we have many people using their gifts and leading us in worship and reading the scriptures and praying and in using their musical talents to lead us. But I have a special soft place in my heart for the banjo because my grandfather used to play the banjo, so it's very nostalgic for me. All right. Well, today we are in our fifth in a six-part series called The Gospel Rhythm. The gospel rhythms, as we've been looking at each week uh, for this month, a little bit over um, a month, we've been looking at this idea that the gospel rhythms are these six habits, these six practices that shape our everyday lives around the gospel and around mission. So there they are for review. You see them up there. Uh, But just a little background for where these came about. Back in 2009, so I guess that's like, what? eight years ago or so, as I was serving in ministry at the church where I came from, I noticed an issue in my own life, in the lives of the people who I was serving as pastor, there was a significant disconnect, I would call it, between what we knew about the gospel and how our everyday lives were shaped and formed around what we knew. And so I was wrestling with that. We were wrestling With that as a church, and in our own daily experience of grace and our engagement in mission beyond our our church, I felt like we were hitting a little bit of a wall. And I thought, here's what we need we need to do another class, we need to have an event, we need to have a seminar, we need to figure out something to do. And then I came across this idea of rhythms and routines as I was at a conference, and I realized that in hearing that concept that we might be missing an important part of what the church should be. There are different pictures, there are different images used to describe what the church is. You may have heard this one, the church is like a hospital. The church is a hospital for people who are broken and in need of healing. So it's not a place to pretend you're okay, it's okay to need healing. And Jesus is the physician of our soul. So the church is then about caring, about welcoming all of us in our brokenness and creating space for that healing to happen. So church is a hospital, or maybe the church is like a school. We need to be learning, we need to be growing in our knowledge of the Scriptures and who Jesus is. Church is a hospital, church is a school. Um, Another one that we often use is the church should be a family, a place of loving support, a place of connection. So the church should be about community. And all those are good, all those are important, but there's another one That actually was mentioned way back in the day by this guy, John Calvin. He said the church should be like a gymnasium. That it should be this society for formation and development. So in addition to being about learning and about connection and about healing, the church should also be about training. Now, if you realize you're not physically healthy and you need to get in shape, maybe one thing you might do is you sign up for a gym. You say, I need to go to the gym, and I need to get healthy, I need to get in shape. So if you go to the gym and you say, you know, I'm just here to learn how people get healthy and fit. I just want to learn from all of you. Well, that probably won't result in you getting more physically healthy. Or you can just say, I just want to come and see all you fit people. I want to get inspired by you, and I kind of want to get to know you and build community with you, and that could be good and beneficial for you, but you're not going to become more fit and healthy yourself. You need to engage yourself in a routine. You need to find that routine and exercise. And that applies spiritually as well. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Timoth- Timothy was being told by Paul, his mentor, he said, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So that means the church maybe should be a gymnasium, like a hospital, also a school, also a family, but let's not forget the gymnasium part, that helping people identify and develop healthy spiritual practices and routines is a part of what the church should be about, and maybe one of the most important things we can do. And that's what the gospel rhythms are all about. My vision for Trinity is that we would be a great hospital, a great school, a great family, and a great gym. So these are our spiritual workout routines together. We've covered four of these. We've covered prayer, listening to the scriptures, giving blessing to people in our lives, as well as opening our lives to community and hospitality. Today we come to the E that's up there on the screen. This is the rhythm, I think, out of all six of the rhythms that although for my Christian friends here, we know this is something important for us, It's one of the the rhythms, probably the one out of all six that we most dread, that we want to avoid, and that we are just maybe uncomfortable with. For those of you who are here and who are not Christians, we're so glad that you're here. If you're processing, asking questions, and exploring, this one you may also feel uneasy about or bothered by. Engage. Engage people intentionally. Intentionally. To help them move towards Jesus. When I share these rhythms with people and I come to the E and people are saying, is that just a code word for that other E word, evangelize? And I say, well, yeah, it kind of is because that word, evangelize, it kind of has so much baggage. It's a great word. It means literally to gospelize, to talk about the gospel with other people in your life. And that's what this is all about. But that word evangelism or evangelize, we hear that word and we feel like, oh, there's pressure. There's guilt that I'm feeling. There's kind of a lot of baggage associated with that. Many of you have probably heard sermons or talks on evangelism. No matter how hard you try not to feel this way, you often feel like what you're left with is a sense of, we're called to be a salesperson, saleswoman or salesman for Jesus. And that just doesn't feel right to you. You share the product. And you close the deal. And a lot of the great success stories that you've heard are about very extroverted people who love talking to strangers. And they meet somebody they've never talked to them before. They engage them in conversation. And then five minutes later, that person has become a Christian. We've heard stories like that. And they're great. But for the rest of us, we feel like, I could never do that. I don't even want to do that. Does that make me a horrible Christian? Well, I worked in retail. Way back in the day, I worked at Foot Locker, so I wore the referee uniform in those days. And whenever you're in retail, you have pressure, right, to engage the customer. And not only that, if somebody's buying something, you have pressure and expectation to do what's called upselling, right? You want to sell them something else, something they didn't come in to purchase. And at Foot Locker, when when anybody bought a shoe, we were supposed to, every time, upsell them so that they would purchase the water protectant spray. And so there was a whole routine that we did we were supposed to do every time somebody bought shoes. We were supposed to say, oh, i got to show you something. There's water protectant spray. It's incredible. You need to get it. It's awesome. Don't leave without it. And so let me show you. We pull out this paper towel, and so we spray um, this water protectant on the paper towel. Say, okay, there it is. That's good. All set. And then we pull out another bottle. It's like a magic trick of water, and we spray it. And so when you do that, it just all beads up. and the paper towel, it doesn't get wet at all. And they're like, look at that. You have to have this. This is the most incredible product ever. But the problem was I hated doing that. I just wanted to sell the shoes, not bother people, and just let them go on their way. And the only time that I ever did it was when my manager was watching. And that's my retail confession. The reason I share that is because we can feel like that when it comes to having conversations about our faith. We feel like we're salespeople for Jesus, and nobody wants to feel like they're offering a product and having to close the deal, and nobody on the other side of the equation really wants to talk to the salesperson who's trying to sell them something. So the question is, is there a way for us to approach faith conversations in a way that relieves, reduces, maybe eliminates the guilt? and the pressure that we feel about this as Christians, and is actually inviting and is welcoming to people who don't believe in Christianity? I think the answer is yes, there is. And Paul shows us this way in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, the passage we just read. This is a very very timely message for me personally to deal with. As I was reading this, I was very convicted and very challenged because I struggle with this. I have kind of a free playing card because I'm a pastor, so I can talk to people about what I do, but this is not easy for me or natural for me. So I'm excited to share this with all of you and for myself as well. So let's set the context of Colossians 4. This passage is the very last section in Paul's letter to the Colossians. It has four chapters. Most of his letter he spent on talking to the church about their formation and growth in their faith. How do Christians mature? He says it's by going deeper into Jesus in faith, not moving on beyond Jesus to other things. That's the theme of the book. He's spending time in the book talking about how Jesus is complete, how Jesus is sufficient for every human need, every longing, every struggle that we have. But before he ends his letter with his final greetings, he pauses and he connects our formation in our faith to our mission. And so he's saying, here's what I want to leave with you. I've been telling you all about how to be mature, how to grow as Christians. But remember, it's not all about you. There's also a mission that we've been given a share in. He reminds them they're partners together. Paul says, you are my partner in the mission that I have. This is a mission given to the church. And that mission is that every person needs to hear a clear and winsome communication of the Christian faith in the context of a loving community or a loving friendship. Paul says this is the mission we share. It's not just me, the apostle missionary Paul, who's carrying out this mission. Every Christian, every church carries out the mission wherever they are. We're all called to engage people intentionally so that they would move towards Jesus. I want to look at four parts of how this works, one at a time. There are Blanks in your outline in your bulletin, so if you're following along, I will fill in those blanks as we go. The first point: pray for open doors. In verse 3, Paul says, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. Open and closed door is an image the Bible uses for spiritual readiness and signs that God is at work. It's an image used throughout the Bible. A couple of places where it's used, Acts 14:27. Paul is sharing a report of his missionary journey and he shares with the church in Jerusalem how he God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Later in Acts 16:14 it's used in a slightly different way of Lydia in Philippi when this woman Lydia heard the gospel it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then in 2 Corinthians 2:12 2, Paul talks about going to a city named Troas and he says the Lord there opened a door of opportunity for us. So three observations here about praying for open doors. The first one is some doors are closed. If some doors are open, that means some doors are closed. Not everyone wants to. Not everybody is ready to have a conversation about faith and meaning. Some doors for now are closed. And that's okay for us to recognize and to respect. We don't force our way in to close doors because the only person who can open those doors is God. This Halloween, we were new to our neighborhood, and so we were reviewing the policies of Halloween with our kids, and we said, here's how you know which doors you knock on. You knock on the doors where the porch light is on. If the porch light is off, then don't go knocking on that door because no matter how hard you knock or how loud you say trick or treat, they will not come. And if they do come, they will probably be angry at you for ringing their doorbell. Engaging in prayer and praying for God to open doors means learning to discern when the door is closed and respecting that. So some doors are closed. second point here about praying for open doors is that prayer does open doors. Prayer is always how mission begins in the Book of Acts, mission began first with prayer. It's how the church began. It's how the church handled opposition. It's how the church grew. That there is this mystery of prayer. Somehow, in God's sovereign control over the world, in His plan and in His purposes, He says our prayers are what He listens to to open doors for the gospel. And so, the first thing, the first step in mission and engaging, is always praying openness. In our time and in our culture especially, becoming a Christian is something that happens over many steps, usually in a long process. There are many reasons, many good reasons why people have closed the door on Christianity in their lives. Some people have been hurt. Some people haven't heard a clear and winsome presentation of the gospel. Some people have an experience of an abrasive or condemning version of Christianity. But no matter what the hurt, no matter what the background, God can open the door. And so Paul says, be steadfast. Continue, be consistent, and be watchful in prayer because prayer opens doors. Thirdly, when a door is open, when we see a door is is open, we can have confidence that God is at work in that situation. This is something that we need to hear if we're Christians and hope to talk about our faith with other people. Because if there's openness in somebody's life, it's not because of how cool we are or how persuasive we are, it's because God is doing something and God is at work. And so if we discern that, if we see that happening, we can have boldness, we can have confidence to engage in that conversation. I think this is also something that you need to hear if you're not a Christian and you're exploring. If there's openness, if there's interest, if there's curiosity in your life then I would encourage you, listen to that, be curious about that, ask questions, find good dialogue partners, because it's a sign that God is doing something in your life. So if there's only one thing you do as a result of this sermon, one takeaway, I would say it would be this, pray, Lord, open a door of opportunity for me to show or for me to share the love of Jesus with the people in my life. I had a professor in seminary who said, he was our evangelism professor, and he said, I dare you to pray this prayer. Lord, open a door of opportunity in my life to show or share the message of Jesus. He said, because God loves to answer that prayer. And I found that to be true. So that's point one. Pray for open doors. Secondly, move toward people who believe differently. First, pray for open doors. Second, Move towards people who believe differently. This is what Paul is saying in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He moves from the image of a door now to the image of walking. Paul says there is a where we should be walking and there is a how to our walking, how we should be walking. Together, this is this image of building true friendships with those who believe differently than we do. Let's look at the where first. Where are we supposed to walk? Paul says there's a direction in which we should walk. It's actually toward outsiders. That term right there, outsiders, we might feel a little bit uncomfortable with that term. It feels exclusionary, this word outsiders. It makes us feel like, what is that all about? But the reality is that in, in life, we're all insiders in some groups and outsiders to others. This isn't a derogatory term. It's just meant to refer to those who are outside of the Christian community. No matter what we believe, in our time, in our culture, in our present cultural moment, this is a very challenging time for us to learn how to live with, to work with, and to dialogue with people who believe differently than we do. Our atmosphere right now is very charged, it's very divisive, and it's very difficult because we can get hung up and we can say, you voted for who? You believe what? How can that be? And the tendency for us is to move into our circles where we're comfortable and people who believe the same as we do. All kinds of issues are out there, issues of immigration, refugee, national security, racial tensions. These are hard issues. But the danger is if we only move towards people who believe like we do, that only sharpens the divide. That only makes things worse. That only increases the tension. Christianity actually calls us to move towards people who believe differently than we do. It's notable that the people whose beliefs most overlapped with Jesus were the people he had the hardest time (laughs) spending time with. If you look at Jesus' life and ministry. The people he enjoyed spending time with were the people who were far out on the fringes, people who believed and behaved very differently than Jesus. Jonathan Dodson in his book, The Unbelievable Gospel, says, Instead of repelling sinners and seekers, Jesus' holiness brought him scandalously close to skeptics, prostitutes, and social rejects. There's an image that Christians are insular, self-righteous, enclosed, and that shouldn't be Paul says we should be people who move towards those who are different than us. So that's the where we should walk. He also describes how we should walk. He says walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is a thoughtful, balanced, and practical application of our faith to the real issues of our lives and the issues of our community. So wisdom is more than knowledge. It's very thoughtful, it's balanced, and it's practical taking what we believe, and how does it make a difference to the issues that people are facing? Walking in wisdom means the goal, then, is not to win an argument or debate with people in conversation, but it's to show and to share the difference that Christianity makes to the practical issues in your life and in the lives of other people. In order for this to happen, there has to be true friendship, because this can't happen unless... You know the needs and the issues and the practical realities that people are facing and the people in your community are facing. And people need to know the practical issues and struggles that you are facing and how you are dealing with those the best you can with the wisdom of the gospel. I want to share a quote from Alan Kreider in his article in a book called Ancient Faith for the Contemporary World. He says this about friendship and faith-sharing. He says, Faith-sharing... Today, as in the early church, happens in the context of friendship. Faith sharing is not primarily a product of evangelistic programs. It is a byproduct of face-to-face relationships in which there is no program or goal, simply the communication of people who value each other and can share what is central to their lives while all parties listen. If the gospel is precious to us as Christians, if God is at work in our lives and our churches and our world, we Christians will speak about it to the people we care about. I thought that was very well said, that faith-sharing, faith conversations happen most effectively in the context of friendship. That's point two. Secondly, or thirdly, be intentional in your relationships. Look at the second half of verse five. Paul says, making the best use of the time or make the most of the opportunities. So as we're praying for open doors, as we're moving towards friendships, toward friendships with people who believe differently than us, then we're also called to make the most of the opportunities that arise from meaningful conversation. The language here is the language of the marketplace. It's this idea that you're snatching up the bargains as you see them. Now, I know Probably here in this room, some of you are big-time bargain shoppers. You're always on the lookout for a bargain, and when you find one, you're actually more excited about how much you saved and the percentage off than whatever it is that you bought. That's the bargain shopper. And this is the picture. You go into a store with 50 bucks, you have a limited amount of money, and as you're going through, you want to buy the right things for the right price. You want to maximize your money, and so you're looking for sales. That's the image that Paul is using here for the way we're to engage in relationships with other people. Like money, we all have a limited amount of time and relational capacity for other people. And in our culture, we tend to be connected to so many people. We have so many acquaintances, but so little friendships. How do we know how to invest our time and where to invest our time? Paul says we should be intentional, intentionally thinking about our relationships. Three Ps I want to give here and I want to put them up on the screen about how we can be intentional in our relationships. The first is the providence of God. And that is referring to the fact that nothing is an accident, nothing is a coincidence. The people that you are connected to in your relational network are there on purpose and God has put them in your life. Second, people never projects. You look at the very end of verse 6 in Colossians 4, he says, that you may know how to answer each person. Engaging people is never about making people into projects, not as a means to an end. It's about loving people and caring for them. People never projects. Thirdly, purposeful presence. I I shared with with all of you a few uh, months ago as I was getting to know Tustin, which is the city where we moved, uh, six months ago, I kept noticing these signs that are all throughout Tustin that says, work where you must, but live and shop in Tustin. And that's, you know, that's a command. <laughs> there's, no, there's no gray area there. Tustin says, be local and stay local. And this week, I was having um, lunch with another pastor in Orange County, and I was reminded of the power of focusing and narrowing your time and being purposeful about where you spend it so that you can maximize your relationships. So what I mean by that is uh, I was eating lunch with this pastor, and he, in this place where we ate lunch, a really small place, he knew five people in that place, and he was introduced to another person. They all knew who he was a pastor and what he did, and they knew his name. And the reason that he knew so many people at this lunch restaurant was because he goes there almost every week. And I was struck by that. There's power in being consistent, in being present, wherever it is that God has called you. So be intentional in your relationships. Fourth point, always speak the language of grace. Paul says there in verse 5 and 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you would know how to answer each person. Engaging with people in a way that helps them move towards Jesus means first praying, Secondly, moving towards people who believe differently than than you. Thirdly, being intentional about those relationships. And lastly, having conversations with people that leave a taste of grace. There's a little debate here about what Paul means by saying our speech should be gracious. Is he saying this is how we ought to speak or the manner in which we speak? Or is he talking about what we speak? the content of what we talk about? I think the answer is both because how we speak and what we speak are interconnected. We're always to speak graciously and we're always to speak to other people about grace is what he's saying. Both are so important in breaking down barriers when it comes to engaging. And removing that guilt, removing that pressure that we feel and creating a conversation that's inviting and welcome to people who don't share the same faith as we do. First I want to talk about how we speak. One of the biggest barriers that others have when it comes to discussing religion and faith is often other people's perception is that these kinds of conversations can become very heated, very abrasive, very combative, very impersonal and preaching and uncaring. Paul says this is never how it should be. Anytime we talk about Jesus, we should do it graciously. We should do it tactfully. We should do it courteously. That's what makes it salty. That's what makes it inviting. So when you're learning another language, some of you know more than one language, there are at least two challenges we face. You have to learn a new dialect, and also you have to deal with the issue of accent. Sometimes, no matter how hard you're trying to say the words, they're not coming it out right because your accent is foreign to the language you're speaking. I spent a summer in Argentina while I was in college and we were helping to start a campus ministry down there at a college in Mendoza. One thing we looked to do was have conversations with people about our faith. And so we developed a friendship with one, one gal and we talked about what we were doing and she actually said, I want to hear more. You have that little booklet there. We used a little outline booklet to explain the gospel in Spanish. She said, read me that booklet. I want to learn more. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And so I'm, my Spanish wasn't great. So I'm reading through this booklet, just kind of word for word reading, and she's listening engaged and all that. And so we get to the end of this presentation, and she says, oh, that was great. I said, oh, okay, are you interested in in talking more about this the best I could in my broken Spanish? And she said, no, I just wanted to hear you talk in Spanish because it's so bad and so funny in your accent. I said, oh, okay. (laughs) That wasn't necessarily what we were looking for. She was... Willing to listen to the content I had to say because of my accent. I think that's an illustration of what Paul is saying here, that we should always be speaking with an accent of grace. That should be our accent with all our words. Most people, I think, are longing to find conversation partners with in life, whom they can have meaningful, important conversations with, where there's not going to be condemnation, there's not going to be judgment, but there's going to be respect even where they think differently. I think I am longing for that. We are longing for that. And I think everybody is longing for that. People who speak with the accent of grace are the kind of people you'll trust to have those conversations with. So that's how we should speak. Grace is also what we should speak. When you have an opportunity or an open door to have a meaningful conversation with somebody about the Christian faith, somebody who doesn't believe in Christianity, Paul says... I want to give you some guidance. Always center that conversation on the topic of grace. Why? Because grace is what makes Christianity so salty. It's what gives it its distinctive flavor. It's what makes it taste different than anything else out there. When it comes to people who are trying to convince us of something or persuade us to do something, we all have a lot of Cynicism. We're all very skeptical. If somebody's trying to sell us something, we're always like, well, what's the catch? A couple months ago, Amelia and I were staying in a hotel, and they were like, you can have three nights in a great hotel, and you can have a $200 Visa gift card. And we're like, okay, that's great. That sounds great. What's the catch? You have to spend two hours in the timeshare presentation. Some of you have done that, and you have to count the cost. Can we handle saying no for two hours over and over again? To get that reduced rate and staying at the hotel. We said, no, it's not worth it for us. Paul says, always center the conversation around grace because grace, in grace, it means there is, there's no catch. Christianity is the one worldview, the one approach to living where there is no catch. Grace means we are accepted, we are loved by God, not based on what we do, what we have to do to earn our status with Him, to earn His love and acceptance. We are loved, we are accepted, because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a gift. And when we receive that gift, it costs us nothing, but it changes everything. What might this look like? Well, in a culture where we base our identity on our achievements, on our success, in a culture where we are caught up in comparing ourselves to other people, where everything's a competition, in a culture where we exhaust ourselves trying to do it all and be it all, and in a culture where we hide our shame and our brokenness behind our competency. Grace says, what if our identity was found in being loved by God? What if we were all equally broken and in need of grace? What if we didn't have to exhaust ourselves in perfectionism? but we could rest in what has been done for us. What if we didn't have to hide our brokenness and our issues, but we were safe to be who we are? The gospel says those those realities are true. It costs us nothing, but it changes everything. So that conversations about grace will always be welcome as a breath of fresh air, no matter where you are in your faith. Just a few final thoughts as we close. I think what Paul is saying here about having conversations centered on grace relieves the pressure and the guilt that we feel. One of those major pressure points is we feel like, how can I have a conversation about Jesus and the gospel with other people when I just don't have it all together? If we think we have to speak as an expert Christian or a model Christian or an I-have-it-all-together Christian, then we will rarely, if ever, have conversations with other people. So grace means that our readiness is not the absence of struggle, the absence of sin and issues in our lives. Readiness means that we're handling and we're willing to share how we are finding grace in our struggles and in our sin. So the most salty, the most attractive thing about Christianity is not necessarily it's intellectual coherence, although that is very compelling. It's not necessarily it's ethical code, although I think that is also very compelling. The most salty thing about Christianity is grace. So sharing how we handle our failures, our struggles, our continued issues, being the first one to confess or repent and say we were sorry, these are some of the best ways we can naturally talk to people about our faith. And so success means, did did the other person that I'm talking with get just a little taste of grace? Success doesn't mean were they convinced. Success doesn't mean were they converted. That's not our job. That's God's job. Our job is to give other people just a little taste of grace, how we love them and what we say to them, and hopefully leave them thirsty for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging topic for us. We realize that in your wisdom and in your purposes, you have given us a part to play in your mission, of helping people who have never heard or who misunderstand the gospel a chance to hear it clearly. Winsomely. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with what that looks like. We struggle with boldness and fear. We care more about what people think about us. All these things we wrestle with as we come to this. But I pray that you would encourage us, that you would open up doors for us even this week, that you would take the pressure off, take the guilt off, that we would learn to be people who naturally speak about grace. Thank you that it really is all about grace, that you accept us, that you love us, that you delight in us because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that you would refresh and renew us in that joy so that we would naturally, we would out of the overflow of our hearts, speak to other people about what you are doing in our lives and what you have done for us in your son, in whose name we pray, amen.